Today we're going to get the big picture of the book of Micah. Of course, we always have important questions coming from these books that we uh, desire to answer. But one question I want to start off with for you today is this. What do you want out of religion? What do you want out of religion? You see, the religions that are often championed today are these, these religions of mystery and tolerance and change. The rising generation has been taught to give the benefit of the doubt to the unknown. You know, they, they, they love the unknown, they love to think about the unknown, and you give the benefit of the doubt to the unknown. So mystery, in a way, is, is something that's very much in style today. And since truth for many people in this postmodern age is, you know, truth is personal, uh, there are no absolutes. Well, you know, my truth may not be your truth, but tolerance is the least we can offer to people with different values than our own. At least that's what often is said today. And in this sort of an environment that we live in, the ability to make changes is something essential. Some theologians have even gone so far as to suggest that God changes. Yes, some theologians suggest that God changes. They say that He too develops and and he too grows along with everything else in the universe. Many people believe that the ultimate being in the universe is mysterious. And, and frankly, they like him being mysterious. They don't want him to be personal and intimate and unchanging. They prefer the idea of a God who is, who is so removed and so different from us that he's more like a force than a father. Well, does this describe what you understand Christianity to be? Is that how you view it? Is that what you look for in your own religion? Well, if so, you might be interested in the book of Micah today. If you've thought any of those things ever in your life, I I hope you will find this book interesting and applicable for you. The prophet Micah, obviously named after him, wrote... In a day, quite frankly, that's not too unlike or different from our own today. Prophesying, by the way, in the 8th century B.C., that's before Christ, Micah found the nation of Israel was in, in, well, it was in deep trouble with God, quite frankly. Very deep trouble with God. Uh, They, as God's chosen nation, they had fallen into a terrible moral depth. Society was dissolving before Uh, God's eyes and misery was the result of their walking away from God. By the way, it's that way with every society. As they walk away from God, misery ensues. And in this passage, in this next passage we're going to look at in chapter 7 here, Micah, this is is interesting because Micah speaks as the personification of the people of Judah. Look at chapter 7. Sorry, not, uh, yeah, chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1. Woe is me, now remember he's personifying uh, the people of Judah here. Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the ripe, or the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among men. 
They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net. That they may successfully do evil with both hands, the prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe, and the great man utters his evil desire, so they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from, from, from her who lies in your bosom. For son dishonors father. Daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. We'll stop there. As you can see, misery is abounding here in this passage as a result of, of their, their, their moral depths that they had fallen to. The godly aren't to be found here, yet Micah was not without hope. He was not hopeless. If you look at the very next verse, chapter 7, verse 7, we see a, a ray of hope shining from this verse. It says, Therefore... I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Micah's hope in this very difficult situation was based on God. Not on the kings of Judah. Not on his nation. Not on the economy. Not on other nations. Not on himself. It was based on God. I love that little word there in verse 7. Some of your Bibles might have the word but. Some, the, the, the new KJV has the word therefore. But that little word, it kind of sums up the, the, the verse, if you will. Sums up what's going on here. We, we see words of doom and gloom in verses 1 through 6. We, we come to verse 7. Therefore, or but. It's as if he's saying, yes, the situation is bad, but God will hear me. I'm looking to the one who hears me. So what does God desire? What does God desire? That's a good question for us to ask. Are we looking, or I should say, as we look through the book of Micah, we are going to observe three things that God says that he wants. Three things that God wants. Sorry, three things that God wants. And we need to take note of these things that God wants because these are to be the same things that we should want. Number one. God wants wrongs to be rebuked. God wants wrongs to be to rebuked. And in this book of the Bible, we see it especially amongst his own people, the Israelites here, God wanted wrongs to be rebuked. Now, having said that, we need to think the, of the big picture of the book of Micah here. Okay, And as we look at this big picture, I want to take, there's three parts some have divided the book into three parts based on three series of prophecies. Chapters 1 and 2 would be 1, 3 through 5, the second part, and then chapters 6 and 7 would be the third set of prophecies. And it appears that that's a good way to divide the book up into those three parts. And as we do that, we'll kind of take those three parts and use them as kind of three subsets coming under this heading that God wants wrongs to be rebuked and you're going to see that truth coming from all three parts now the sins of israel are condemned in each one of these 
three series of prophecies. And right from the very start, if you, if you would turn to chapter 1, right from the very start in chapter 1, Micah promises that God is coming to confront Judah for its sins. God wanted the wrongs to be rebuked. He's, he's confronting them with their sins. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of, and mentions these kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, for the Lord, or the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob. I'll remind you, Jacob is just another name for Israel. Remember, God turned Jacob's name to Israel. Of course, he was father of the Israelites. And of course, you see his name in the very next phrase, which says, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley, and I will uncover her foundations. Notice how severe this judgment would be for God's special people. Very severe. In fact, verse 3 says that God would come down and he uses the word here, tread. (laughs) That's an interesting choice of word there. Uh, it's, It's the idea that all the weight of his divine righteousness is bearing down on the treasonous creatures who are more committed to their sins than they are to God. They're more committed to their sins than they are to God, and God is going to come down and bear and tread on them because of that. God's promise of destruction continues on into chapter 2. Read that. We can see this here in the first three verses of chapter 2. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. I'm in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, at morning light they practice it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses, and they seize them. So they oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. What's the point of those verses? Again, it's not necessarily good news, is it? God's pointing out their sin. He's, he's pointing out to them why he's bringing judgment. The, the point is this, that God wanted wrongs to be rebuked, and he would ensure that judgment came to them for those wrongs. In fact, we know that God used foreign military powers to accomplish his purposes. We know from history 
that the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. And by the way, that took place just several years after Micah gave this prophecy. Not that long after he gave this prophecy, the Assyrian Empire destroyed the northern kingdom of of Israel. Literally wiped them off the map. And it's a very sad story because those northern ten tribes of Israel disappeared from the pages of history and they disappeared forever, never to be seen again, even to this day. And then 150 years later, Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah were defeated and they were carried off into exile by the, by the Babylonians. So that's the first set of prophecies. Let's, let's look at the second set of prophecies. And here, these, this, this series of prophecies also are focusing on the sin that required rebuke. Now, in, in this set of prophecies, it's interesting because primary uh, among those sins that are listed here were the sins of the leaders. Their leaders of, of Judah were abusing the people and they were doing it for their own ends they were abusing the people for their own ends look at chapter 3 verse 1 chapter 3 verse 1 and i said hear now o heads of jacob and you rulers of the house of israel is it not for you to know justice a rhetorical question you who hate good and love evil who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time. Why? Because they have been evil in their deeds. That's why God did that to those leaders. So my friend, please understand this, that sin has consequences. The reason why God did what he did, as as it says there, is because of sin. Sin has consequences, and the most fundamental consequence of sin is the alienation that it causes between human beings and God. Yes, sin causes a, a break, a separation, an alienation between God and his created people. The heart of God's punishment is, or I should say, the heart of God's punishment is when he literally cuts us off from communication. It's a scary thing to find that God is not taking your calls. It's a bit like trying to call some hotline and you never get an answer. Or your cell phone never rings. Or your cell phone's out of battery. Or, you know, you find yourself stranded somewhere. That's essentially what's going on here. They, they try to talk to God, but God isn't answering the phone. There's no communication taking place here because he's cut off the communication because of their sin. By the way, the sin of Israel was not limited to their leaders. You can see it in that passage that it was uh, talking about the leaders. But the whole nation was also guilty of false worship and false trust. And you can see that in chapter 5. So turn to chapter 5 because we see here that God promises to destroy the objects of their security. By the way, let me remind you that an idol is not just something made out of stone or wood or metal. An idol is anything that someone is putting their security in. 
An idol is anything that we love more than God. That's what an idol is. And we see here in this case, God is, he's, he comes to these people who are worshiping idols, and he promises to destroy their objects of security, the things that they are hoping and trusting in. Look what God says in chapter 5, verse 10. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no soothsayers. Your carved images I will also cut off, and your sacred pillars from your midst. You shall no more worship the work of your hands." Do you see God is cutting off their security? The things that they they hold dear, the things that they love. So my friend, consider how stupid sin really is. Sin is stupid. It's foolish. To to think about it, just think about the just consider with me the havoc that sin causes in your life. If you would do that, it might help us to sin less. <laughs> Uh, might help me to sin less. I mean, just think about it. For example, what has been the harvest of your pride? What has pride accomplished in your life? What has pride accomplished in our universe? Think what it did to Lucifer. Think what it did to Adam and Eve. Think what it did to everybody else mentioned in the Bible. Pride is destructive. Are you sick of your sin yet? (laughs) That's a good question to ask. As we look at the harvest of our pride and, and, and what sin accomplishes in our lives, we need to ask the question, well, am I sick of it or do I love it? Well, you should be sick of it because sin produces nothing good. Well, what else does Micah tell us that God wants? Number one, we saw that God wants wrongs rebuked. Number two, God wants his people to be restored. God wants his people to be restored. Now again, in every section of this prophecy, remember it's divided up into three different series, if you will, but uh, we saw how how God wanted sin or wrongs to be rebuked, but we are also going to see in all three of these that God wants his people to be restored. And we, we read about the hope in this passage, in every one of these passages, Literally, there's just, or figuratively, there's words of light that are just bursting out of the darkness in these pages. To start off with, I want you to see one verse. Chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. Coming after very dark words, look at chapter 2, verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. So we see words of hope. Words of hope. Look at another one in chapter 4. We don't have time to look at all of the words of hope, but uh, just look at uh, chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a, a woman in birth pangs, For now you shall go forth from the city, you shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. Now that's bad news, but look at the good news. There you shall be delivered, 
There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. <laughs> Boy, I would, I, th- those would have been wonderful words of comfort if I was a part of the group that went to Babylon. Or if I was born in Babylon like some of them were. Those would be great words of hope. God would fulfill these promises, by the way, by, by first sending a, a, a group of people from Judah and Jerusalem into exile. And he did that about 150 years later in the year two, or sorry, 605 B.C. And God would then fulfill his promise to restore his people 70 years after that first deportation. Eventually, you can read in the historical books of your Bible, eventually uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, which are the, the end of, literally the end of, uh, chronologically speaking, of your Old Testament. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah would also return to the land of Israel. They would lead the people in recovering God's word as well as rebuilding Jerusalem's walls. So God would restore his people. You can read it. It's history. He accomplished his purposes. He restored his people as he promised through the prophet Micah. Well, if you've never put 100% of your faith and your trust and your belief in Jesus Christ, I hope that you will become one whom God will save today. Surely, surely, I hope you know this, that, that, that some, you are a sinner We learned that as we studied Romans. That's the whole point of the first three chapters of Romans. The whole world stands guilty before God. There are none righteous. No, not one. We've all sinned. Well, you may believe that there is a God. I hope you do. And you may have some kind of a sense that one day you're going to give an account to a higher being. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Maybe you think that if you do good enough works that your sins somehow are going to outweigh the the bad that you do. There are many people in our world today that think, you know, God has some sort of a scale, you know, and he's going to put your good works on this side and on this side your bad works, and, you know, the scale goes like this depending on which one weighs more than the other. Many people believe that about God. And so they go through life hoping that their good works somehow outweigh their bad works. (laughs) And if, you know, God looks at their their sins and the good works, and if the good works outweigh the bad, then somehow God's just going to overlook the bad. But that's not the picture the Bible presents. I mean, that might be nice. The reality is that is not reality. The reality is the Bible says the opposite. You can't simply erase your past sins. You can't do that. The damage has already been done, and it's been done from from birth. You were born with a sin nature. You were born a sinner. If you could erase your sins, by the way, there would be no justice in the universe. The judge of the universe would not be just to ignore our sins. Think about it. If you had a, a, a convicted person who was guilty of crime stand before a judge at, at the Hamilton courts, maybe somebody who had killed one of your children or killed maybe your mother or your father, you would expect that judge to give the person what they deserve. You would expect the judge to, to, to bring justice to a person who is guilty of a crime, right? 
You'd expect that to happen. No justice would be accomplished if the judge sits there in the Hamilton courts and says, oh, you poor little man, you know, uh, I'll forgive you. Just don't do it again. No, that's not justice, is it? We would say that judge is not being just. Well, my friends, we're no different. We're all sinners. We stand guilty before the judge of the universe who is not going to overlook our sin. And so if he could just, just look at us and, and, and just simply erase them for no good reason, then he wouldn't, there would be no justice in the universe. And so, my friend, you cannot save yourself from the guilt of your sin. You cannot save yourself from the penalty of your sin, which is death. But you do need to be saved. So this presents a problem, doesn't it? The big question is, how can we be saved? Well, we must begin by, number one, acknowledging that we are sinners, that we have sin, and that our sin requires God's justice. And that He, he demands that justice is, is going to take place either from you or from a substitute. Now, here's the good news. <laughs> if you try to pay the penalty for your sin, then you'll be in the lake of fire forever, suffering for your sin. But there's an alternative, my friend. The alternative is there is a substitute who has paid the penalty for your sin so you don't have to. And His name is Jesus Christ. He was your substitute when He was nailed on that cross and He shed His blood and He paid the penalty for your sin on your behalf. Now the bad news is if, again, if you try to pay the penalty, you're going to suffer for all eternity in the lake of fire. Your only hope is then to look to the one who was your substitute. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, and see what he has already done for you by living, number one, the perfect life that you should have lived and dying the death that we all deserve to die and then conquering death and sin and rising again. Your only hope is him. Your only hope is putting your trust, your faith, your belief in him and then repenting of your sins. And so by repenting and trusting in Christ, then, my friend, you will be counted among God's people. That is your only hope. Well, number three, let's move on. What else does God want? We see that God wants, number one, wrongs to be rebuked. Number two, God wants His people to be restored. And number three, last of all, we see that God wants His character to be known. God wants His character to be known. Well, if the basic message of Micah is that wrongs will be rebuked and that God's people will be restored, i got some good news for you because behind and above those two points, those two basic points, is God's commitment to make Himself known through several means. And we can see the means that God makes Himself known here in this book. God wants you to know Him. And He is revealing Himself and making Himself known primarily through his character and his works. Look, and, and we'll see this. He's doing it through his judgment and through his mercy. Judgment and mercy. Now this commitment, if you will, is the foundation of all else that he does. He is committed to his character. He is committed to making himself known to you. God is not out there trying to be mysterious and play hide-and-go-seek with you. <laughs> all right? That is not the way he is, and we can see that in several ways. First of all, God wants his character be, to be known through the acknowledgement of his supremacy. 
Do you believe that God is supreme above all of His creation? Above everything else, He is supreme. I want you to see this in chapter 4. Don't take my words for it. Take God's words for it. Chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and the people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast, and those whom I have afflicted, I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. Let's stop there. I hope you can see that God wants His character to be known. And He's he's doing it through the acknowledgement of His supremacy. God did not intend for Israel to be reassembled simply for the, well, just for the good of His chosen people. That's not why He did that. In fact, over and over and again in the Bible, you see he he, He does it for His namesake, for His glory. It was ultimately so that His supremacy would be acknowledged in this universe. He wanted His sovereign rule over the nations to be understood, including the unbelievers. Sadly, though, too many people, what do they look to? Sadly, too many people look to other things. They, you know, they look to the United Nations or other, other groups or other people or other things to bring peace to them and to their countries and to the world. My friends, United Nations and other people will not bring peace. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Peace will only be established through God's reign. And until people recognize, there will be no peace. Well, how does God want His character to be known? Number two, God wants His character to be known through the remembrance of His righteousness. Through the remembrance of His righteousness. He wants to be known as a righteous God. He wants you to know Him that way. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. Hear now what the Lord says. Aride, please your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against His people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. 
Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal. Now notice, notice the last part of verse 5. That you may know the righteousness of the Lord. That you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Why did God do what he did for his chosen people, the nation of Israel? That they would know the righteousness of the Lord. So what is God doing here? He is literally reminding them of their history, isn't he? He is recalling his blessings to Israel. He's reminding them of his miraculous delivery from Pharaoh's army and his power, his preservation of them, those those, uh, those years out there in the wilderness. He is giving, uh, re- he's reminding them of the promised land that he gave to them. God had acted righteously toward his people. He wanted them to remember his righteousness. <laughs> Did they? Sadly, they didn't. Many, many didn't. I'm not saying all didn't, but many of them did not, which is why God had to Uh, bring them into exile well what else does god want us to know number three god wants his character to be known through the demonstration of his mercy god demonstrates his mercy to us so that we would know him and his character look at chapter seven chapter seven let's just look at three verses starting in verse 18 chapter seven verse 18 This is how the book of Micah ends. It says in verse 18, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Do you see the one characteristic mentioned here is God's mercy. God's mercy. What is God doing here? What did... uh, Well, let me ask you this. Do you see the good news in that? (laughs) There is good news in those wonderful verses. There is, number one, pardon for sins. That's good news. And there is forgiveness for our transgressions. How does that happen? How does that happen? My friend, remember, sin is your worst problem you have. It is the biggest problem you have. But how does that happen? Well, it says that God's compassion will free us from the tyranny of our sins. Now, he means to display his mercy here. He does that over and over again in Scripture. Have you ever considered, my friend, the question of why God does what he does? Why why would God forgive any of us? Now, some people ask the question, why doesn't God send all people to heaven? That's the wrong question. You know what the correct question to ask is? Why doesn't God send us all to hell? That's what we deserve. Why doesn't he send us all to hell? Why does God forgive us, any of us, of our sins? He doesn't have to, and we don't deserve it. So why does he? 
Why doesn't God immediately and ultimately punish all of us and give us what we deserve for our sins? Well, since God hates sin, we would... We we need God's forgiveness then, don't we? God hates sin. He doesn't overlook sin. He judges sin. So therefore, we need God's forgiveness. And so to get the answer to these questions, we need to observe how Micah ends the prophecy here in verse 18. Or I should say how he starts verse 18. The answer is found there in verse 18. Who is a God like you? God ultimately forgives Number one, because of who He is. That's the solution. That's the answer. Because of who God is, He forgives. It is only because of His character that you and I have any hope at all. I want you to look at the, at the question in verse 18 again. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage? The implied answer in that rhetorical question is no one. No one. If God does not forgive sins, then guess what? Micah is wasting his time. We're all wasting our time if God doesn't forgive sins. But in this this case, that is not the case because God does forgive sins because we see there even in verse 18, he is a God who pardons iniquity, who passes over the transgression. That's who God is. (laughs) Now Micah knew that God would punish sin, but he also knew that God would pardon and forgive sin. That's the good news, my friend. Why, though? Why does God do that? God forgives because of His character. Because He delights in His own steadfast love, or as you see here, His mercy. That is great news for us, because, my friend, you and I need mercy We need His steadfast love. Without it, we have no hope. So we've seen that God wants His character known. He is a God who has revealed Himself. He is not a God shrouded in some force or mystery. He wants His supreme, righteous, and merciful person to be recognized, and because it is recognized, to be worshipped and adored. That is what God wants. The question is, my friend, what do you want? What do you want? Does your wants match up with God's wants? Okay, here's here's where the rubber is going to meet the road now, okay? Do your wants match up with God's wants? You've heard God's wants. Do your wants match up with His wants? What does God want? Well, I'll remind you, God wants wrong to be rebuked. Do you? Or are you more committed to holding on to your sin than being committed to Him? Who has forgiven sin? God wants you to be restored. Do you? Do you? God wants His character to be known. Do you? Are you committed to revealing His character to the world around you? To your workmates? To your friends? To your family? So forth? To your neighbors? Are you committed to making God known, accurately known to the people around you? Or do you think of religion as just some kind of fire insurance from hell? You know, great, yeah, I got my fire insurance from hell. I'm all set. You know, I don't need to do anything else. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But according to James, James James said that religion lives itself out in the everyday life. 
religion looks after the widows. James said religion looks after the orphans and so forth. Religion is living a blameless, holy life, James says. That's what true religion is. Religion isn't just, you know, great, you know, I I got my fire insurance from hell now. That's not true religion. And so I have to ask the question, do you want what God wants? Honestly, do you care much about God? Do you want to know Him more? Do you have the same kind of, uh, of of a commitment and desire the Apostle Paul had in Philippians? Where he said, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Is that your goal? Absolutely. And it's not enough to just know about uh, the, the good news of salvation, that I am saved from my sins, and if I trust in Christ, I'm going to heaven. That's not good enough. God is much bigger, wider, broader, better, more beautiful than, than that. That is a portion of who God is. God wants you to know Him fully. So do you care? <laughs> or is religion and your salvation just kind of a social thing for you? My friend, just consider your religion for a moment. Consider your Christianity. How much does it have to do with God? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a bit of an oxymoron when you think about it, right? Because who is in the word Christianity? Christ. And so I, I have to ask the question, how much does Christ have to do with your Christianity? Is he supreme? Is he number one? Is, is he your greatest treasure? Is he your greatest love? Are you desiring to know him more? Is knowing him the center of your life? Is learning to know him better the center of your life and your ambition? Well, it should be, because look what chapter 6 says. Look what chapter 6 says. These are some wonderful verses. These are some of my favorite verses in all of the Old Testament. Look, chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, God has just told you what He expects. God does not want us to just go and offer sacrifices and then to forget the other things. He wants us to to be humble, to humble ourselves before Him and, and to submit ourselves before His Lordship and His authority. He wants us to act justly and to love mercy. But why? Why does God want that? Don't miss the point of this, my friend. Don't miss the point of why God says to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Why does God want that? He wants us to act justly and to love mercy because you are to be an accurate reflection of Him. He is is wanting to make Himself known. He wants Himself to be glorified and to be worshipped and to to be loved with all. And when we don't do that, when we don't do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God, we are not accurately representing Him. 
Because God is a God of mercy. He is a God of love. He is a God of justice. Absolutely. This is the way Jesus was. And Jesus said, you can expect the same. My friend, in this world, you can expect tribulation, he says. And in fact, Timothy says, all who live godly shall suffer persecution. The darkness doesn't like the light because their deeds are evil, John says. So loving justice and mercy is reflecting God's own character. That's what you're here for. You are to reflect his character. You are to give the right opinion of God before the world around you. Are you doing that? Do you know what God loves? And are you striving to be that and do that? So that's what we're to be. And if you have failed to do this, then there's good news, my friend. If you're sitting here thinking, oh man, (laughs) I haven't... I don't do justly, and I don't love mercy, and I don't walk humbly with my God. Is there any hope? There is, my friend. There is always hope. There is hope for the one who has sinned. When you run to Jesus and bow before Him, He is able to forgive. God is able to forgive. And how can you be forgiven? My friend, it's only through the Messiah. And by the way, He's mentioned here. The Messiah is mentioned in Micah. Look at chapter 5. Let me just end with looking at Jesus, because he is the one who is the author and finisher of our faith. Micah chapter 5, this will be the last verses we look at. Micah 5, verse 1. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against you. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she uh, who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this one, capital capital O, shall be peace when the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces. Then we will rise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. Well, that gets into confusing stuff there, but here's the point, my friend. Forgiveness comes through the Messiah. Who was this ruler of Israel that is coming from the least expected place, by the way, which is Bethlehem? (laughs) I mean, some have said there may have only been 200 people living in Bethlehem when Christ was born. It's a little insignificant place in the big picture of things. But this one who was born in Bethlehem, the least expected place, is is Jesus Christ. He is the eternal Son of God. He is the one who was born of the Virgin Mary. And notice, according to verse 5, that this one ruler will literally be their peace. So my question for you, friend, is he your peace? The only hope Israelites had was for Jesus to be their peace, and the only hope you and I have is for Jesus Christ to be our peace. In him, 
the people's peace will be embodied. In him, the people's peace will be accomplished. In Jesus Christ, the people's people's peace will be secured. God's mercy is literally embodied in Jesus Christ. So my friends, do you see what God is like? He will have wrong wrong rebuked, his people restored, and his sovereign, righteous, merciful character displayed. The question for you is then, do you love this God as he has revealed himself in Scripture? Has this God captured your heart? Do you love him with all? Let's pray.